Good morning. My name is John Heck, and our scripture reading for today is found in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. It's found on page 1509 in your pew Bible, so if you'd like to follow along. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace He has given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, even though so many of our church people are away this weekend, you get to be here for one of the most important texts in the Bible uh, related to coming to church and the difference it should make when you go out of church and where it all starts. Uh, You gather to worship, but then you shouldn't stay the same when you leave, right? And this is a great text about that. When John read it earlier, did you notice that, that it starts with having our minds focused in the right direction, even in those times when we don't feel like we can even get them focused? And so as I was reading this text this week, what I thought of was all these years that I was a student in, in college and then grad school, which was about 13 years. Can you believe I should be a lot smarter than I am. But at the beginning of every semester, the same thing would happen. And some of you who've been in college or even are in college right now, you know this happens. You go into each one of the classes and you get this thing, and it's the only place you ever use this word, you get a syllabus. I mean, I don't know why they, we picked that word. A syllabus had uh, not only a description of the course, but also all the requirements for that course. So I remember I would go to all the classes, get that syllabus, look at all the things I had to do for that whole semester. I'd go back to the dorm room or to the place where I was living, and I'd look at that, and I would panic every time. We even had a word for it. It's called syllabus shock. You look at all these things that you have to do and you say it's impossible. There's no way you can do all of this. You start thinking as many times as I've done it this time, I'm going to flunk out. This happens to a lot of students. Now, the worst time that I could remember was my first semester as a doctoral student at Marquette University. I went into a class. It was called patristics, which means a study of the early church. So I went into this patristics class and there were 15 of us in that class. Now, that may not sound too big to you, but for a doctoral level class, that's a huge class to have. So we were sitting there waiting for the professor to come in and the professor did come in. His name is Dr. Joseph Leanhart, became one of my favorite teachers I've ever had. But this time as he walked in, he looked over this class. It seemed to me he had a bit of a scowl on his face. He put his papers down on the lectern. Then he looked up at us, and and I'll never forget what he said. He said, that which is common is vile. I apply that to the giving of A's. Don't expect one in this course. And then he handed out this syllabus to us with these, what it seemed to me, absolutely impossible requirements. Thousands of pages of reading, insisting that we had to read in original sources in the original languages. 
as they were written for the early church, all of these papers that were there, all these tests we were going to have to take. I went home with that thing and I only had one thought. I'm going to quit that class. No way I'm going to do all of that. But for some reason I didn't. I don't know why I didn't. But the next class I went into, the next patristics class, as I walked in, there were only five of us there. <laughs> All right, so we were there, and then in comes Dr. Leonhardt. He looked, had a bit of smile on his face, and he said, There, this is the right size for a doctoral course. <laughs> now pass in those other syllabi, here's the real one. <laughs> I, came to learn what, I learned what I now know is true. Uh, professors don't like grading all those papers any more than we students like writing all those papers. Well, you know, many of you can understand that whether you've been in that situation or in any other thing in this world, when you get things that it, it just feels like it's too much, too many things to do, what happens in our minds is we get out of control. Uh, we begin panicking. Uh, we don't know what we're going to do. And it just we become so frantic. Sometimes we even feel hopeless wondering what to do, and sometimes we do dumb things. And all that, as it always does, brings us to the sermon today. And the first Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, because that's what it's all about. Uh, for those of you who haven't been here, uh, in the first part of First Peter 1, and I hope you'll read it if you haven't been here, verses 1 through 12, it really focuses our attention on God, especially beginning with verse 3. We are to give praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's done so much for us, the maker of heaven and earth, has given to you and me new birth into a living hope. We have something now in God that can never be taken away. And, and it tells us he is so great that even if we walk through some of the difficulties in this world right now, God is still there with us and will even work in the midst of those trials to do great things in our lives. And then it went on to say that we love the Lord Jesus and we trust him. Because we know that because of his death and resurrection, we have everything that the Old Testament prophets were longing to see. It's come to us. Everything that even angels, remember he said, look into, but can't experience. We can't experience it. So it focuses our attention on God and his love of us and his grace toward us. It's like a worship service. So what should happen? We gather in this place and life has been tough out there. We come into the worship service. And, and it should be different from anywhere else. Together, we as People who love God gather and we focus our attention on our Father. And we remember He's greater than anything in this world. And when we meet with Him, then we go out knowing He goes with us and everything should be different. So that's what happens. Peter says, okay, this is what God is like. This is what His grace is like. He knows you. He loves you. There's nothing that happens in your life outside of your Father's control. Therefore, chapter 1, verse 13, go out and be different. He just lets us know that a worship service like this should result in our lives changing. It's always one of my biggest prayers as a pastor. Father, I pray that you would work in our lives so that each one of us who comes into this place may go out being different from what we came in. And that different better, right? That different better. Well, how does that start? Well, the rest of First Peter is talking about how we live, and so it'll be very practical. But I'll tell you, today tells us the place where when we leave worship, being with the Father, where it all begins. And it has several very simple steps that I've tried to boil down for us and give to you. What I pray will happen every time we've gathered here. Step number one, that we'll gather in the presence of God and acknowledge His greatness. Then we will clear our minds. And focus upon what God is doing in our lives. 
Focus on the fact that even if we leave this place and walk into some real trials and temptations, God is still working good in our lives. Focus on that with clear, sober minds. Look how it's put in verse 13. Therefore. Uh, have you ever heard the quip that when you read the Bible and you see therefore, you, you've got to find out what it's there for? Now you've heard it. Now you've heard it. Uh, it means look back to the greatness and power of God. Therefore, because this God loves and knows you and is with you. Therefore, with minds alert and with minds that are fully sober, set your hope, set your minds on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So here it is. Here, like in all of the Bible, if our lives are going to be different, it's going to begin today with our minds. The Bible tells us this, that what we put into our minds and what we settle our minds upon, part of the image of God in us, is so much of what will determine our words and our attitudes, and all of our actions. So that if we come to church knowing that there are words and attitudes and actions that, that don't honor God, then we need to stop in the presence of God and focus our minds on what God is doing and where He is taking us and allow Him to do that. Do You notice there are several phrases that are used there. What kind of minds? The first is that we're to have alert minds. Therefore, with minds... And the way that my version puts it, that are fully alert. Uh, the word is really a sports metaphor. I'm guessing some of you watched some sporting events last night. Uh, and it, but it was for first century sporting events, which was a lot of it was running, Olymp Olympic games and so forth. But men, did you know men usually, used to wear skirt-like things rather than wearing, you know, shorts running and so forth. So it, it, when they ran, they had to roll them up so that they'd be able to run. So I've been thinking, it means get yourself ready for this race. Maybe if he were talking about a race in our day, he would say, okay, get yourself set in those blocks and then get every part of your being, your mind, your whole being focused on the fact that someone is going to say on your mark, get set. Do you feel it? Alertness. And the gun goes off and you are ready to go because you know what you're going into and you know you have some pretty good adversaries all around you. Uh, there are other sports that we like. I'm guessing one or two of you may have watched a basketball game last night. One of the things that struck me in that playoff game where the Lakers were trying to close this thing out was how different that game was in the fourth quarter from the NBA All-Star games. You know, the NBA All-Star games, everybody just kind of tries to show off and show you all the passes and dunks and every, everything they try to do. You don't do that in the fourth quarter of a playoff game. What you saw with people like Kobe Bryant was this focus, this focus that the, that the carry through in the shots, this, this, this getting himself open so that he could do it, so that he could bring the team to victory was something that he was not going to be fuzzy about. Uh, I like to play tennis and I, I know it happens every time I get to a big, big point. Uh, let's say it's a break point against me. If I lose this one, I lose the set and I'm serving at a 30-40 sort of thing. I stop for a moment and think about that serve. I think about where I want to put it. I think about where the person I'm hitting it to usually returns that thing. So if I can bring it into his uh, body, this is what he usually does. So then I can decide, am I going to hit a, a volley or will I stay back and hit it? It's not a time for fuzzy thinking. It's not a time. Do you know what I'm getting at? And so we gather here to worship and we know that when we go from this place, 
Uh, we have battles we're going to have to face. Usually when I go out there on Memorial Day to picnic, I get into a fight with my mother-in-law. And I know that doesn't honor. We get ready for this. I know when I leave this place, these are the places I get into trouble. We are alert to those places where we get into trouble and get ready to honor God. You see it? So alert minds. The second thing is disciplined minds. With minds alert and are fully sober. Now, Peter, when he was writing that phrase in Greek, fully sober means exactly what you think it means. (laughs) Sober. You haven't had too much to drink. He uses this idea of not drinking too much. And by that, I don't mean root beer. I mean the alcohol part. That if we have too much alcohol, it dulls our senses. So that we're not able to do the things that we know we ought to do. So you know what the first sense is to go? With alcohol, it's our hearing. That's why when you see drunks or you go to a bar, people yell so loud. Their, their hearing is being dulled. That means you're not hearing the dangers that might be around you. Then go our inhibitions. Sometimes the things that, you know, we've already decided. I've been alert to this, but now we're not able to carry through. Um, and then, of course, go, go the actions. And what he says is don't let anything distract you in this battle. And I think it's far greater than just that. It's just a metaphor. And, and so the illustrations that we could have are countless. One of them that I've thought of, it, it would be like this. Uh, you go out uh, driving on Tuesday to work and you go through the heavy traffic in L.A. and you're going to have to make this left turn that's always hard to make. And at that point, is not a time to be distracted, right? It's not the time to say, you know, I think I'll drop Pastor Greg a text message. Let me pull that thing out here and try to... It's not a time to think, oh, look, there is uh, the police officer. That's a pretty nice looking guy. Maybe I'd better pull out my lipstick. I don't know if I look good. Maybe I better... It's not a time for that. Uh, whenever, whenever you and I are wanting to live for God in the world that we are going into, we have to be ready to have our minds alert and disciplined. It, it's a part of the uh, gift that God has given us. At the end of the day, even though any time we live for God, it's God's power at work within us, which we're going to see in just a moment. God does give us a responsibility to use what he has given us, his image of God in us. And a part of that is this ability to make a decision, to focus our minds and say, this is what I feel tugged to do, but I know this is right. It means that we analyze those places, that when we go to those places, we keep getting into trouble. And then with focused minds, either we don't go to those places or we go with someone who will help us to be accountable. It means when I get with that person in this kind of a place, I do what is wrong. So either I won't go to that place with that person or if I do, I'll do it in a different way. You see, we make plans. We we get ready for this. So with minds that are fully alert and with minds that have been disciplined to the glory of God, then comes the command that we're going to have God-centered, God-directed minds. Then set your hope. Set those minds, and I like how he puts it, on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Uh, Those who were not here last week, we talked about one of the ways that describes God's rescue of us is that his grace has come to us. It's in the past tense. When the message of Jesus came to you, his grace comes. He's ready to forgive you and to receive you. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But here we see it isn't just a one-time thing in the past. God is going to keep gracing us. 
wherever we go, he'll he'll keep being with us and blessing us. And we are to set our minds on what God is going to accomplish in our lives. When we look back at those things where we've gone wrong and we become so frantic and frustrated, we know that isn't what we're supposed to do. And we pray that the future won't be like that. That in the future we'll just live more the way God made us to live. So we set our minds in that direction. And it has so many things to say to us when it says there is a grace that God is going to bring to us until he completes his work in us when Jesus Christ comes. It implies so many things or suggests so many things. But one of the most beautiful for me is this. It means that God doesn't give up on us. Uh, So many theologians or pastors talk about one of the beauties of of the God of the Bible is that he's a God of the second chance. But it's really a whole lot more than that, isn't it? It's third chance and fourth and fifth, sixth. Do you, remember, do you remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, how many times do we actually have to forgive these rotten people around us keep doing these irritating things? Do you remember what Jesus said? Uh, they said, do I have to do it seven times? And then I don't have to do it anymore. And, and Jesus said, well, 70 times seven. But who's counting? Essentially, whenever people come and truly ask for that, and why should we offer forgiveness and grace? Because God does that for us. Yes, with the expectation that we won't keep going down that path. But he knows us. And when we've gone yet again and we come here to church and in the presence of our gracious God, come and say, I give that to you again. His grace comes to us again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that you and I can leave here in newness of life as new creations and ready to walk with our Father. And this is where it begins, with our minds. So, Lake Avenue Church family. Let me just tell you in the authority of God's word, be careful of what you put into your minds. There is nothing more valuable that God has given us. Do not fill your minds with junk. Sometimes we just spend the whole week filling our minds with junk and then we're surprised that when the pressure comes, junk comes out. That's not me, we think. But it's what we are making ourselves as we keep feeding ourselves. So don't fill your minds with things that don't honor God. It's why one of the reasons to come and to sit for a message like this is that we can take a few moments together and open this word and hear again about God and what he expects of us. It's why it's so important to have some time to read this word on your own and to read good things and to watch good things. Filling your minds and not only filling your minds with things that are good, but obviously from this text setting our minds on things that are good, on what God would have us to do. Uh, The thing that you long for, the thing that you dream about, to be something that really honors God. I'll tell you, that's where it begins. If our lives will go from this place of worship to live lives of worship, it will begin with our minds. That's already quite a message, and I'm not even done. But I'm moving along. Which brings us to step number two. Here's something else that that Peter and I want you to know. When you leave this place, you need to know, you need to have confidence that you don't have to respond to the trials and temptations of this world. You don't have to respond to them in the same way as you did before you were made alive to God. Does that make sense to you? 
Your life can be different. There's hope. Because sometimes we feel we get trapped into these patterns and addictions and we come into church and we think, I've done this so long, it can never be different. It can be different. And look how he puts it in verse 14. Now that you're obedient children, do not conform to those evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, there are two parts of this that are so important just to see, to understand it. First, that little phrase, those obedient children, it's family talk. You see it? That we now are made alive to God as Father, and at the end, we used to be in ignorance, and and we aren't anymore. What on earth is that getting at? So, first of all, this family talk. Um, Now, when you come to know Christ, you are made alive not only to the fact that there is a God, but you and I know God as Father, and He knows us as His children. But what happens when we know God as our Father is, the deepest longing and desire of our hearts is not to dishonor our Father. This is language which I think sometimes people who have grown up in the United States or in Western Europe just, we don't get this thing. All of you who have grown up in Asian settings or African settings or almost anywhere in the world other than the United States and, 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 uh, and, and Western Europe, you understand this that the most determining factor in the way that we live our public lives is making sure we don't dishonor our families. Uh, And that's why when families break down, that often there isn't that motivation to live well because we don't care whether we dishonor, we just live for ourselves. Well, I'm telling you, the Bible was written into a world where that matter of, of honoring our families was so important In fact, one of the biggest issues the New Testament has to deal with is what do we do when we have come to know Christ the Savior and God himself is our Father and God, our eternal Father, wants us to live in a way different from what our biological Father wants us to do. It's one of the biggest issues. How on earth do we follow Jesus without dishonoring our families? I see some of you are nodding. That's what it's dealing with here. And Jesus says there's still you have to love and respect and communicate to your families. But now you have a father who is above any other allegiance. And when we are Christians, we are made alive to God. And our deepest desire is to honor God as obedient children. That's what it's getting at. Then that last phrase, you don't have to just follow the desires you had when you weren't ignorant, when, when you were ignorant. And that word ignorant is almost an unfortunate translation in English because we use that so negatively, don't we? I mean, if we turn to somebody and say, you're ignorant, well, that's such a pejorative negative term. But it just really means you didn't know. Before you came to Christ, you didn't really know God. That's what it means, ignorant, without knowing. Now we do. Now we can walk into his presence as our father. And now we know it's his values that should direct us. Now we know that the biggest issue of our lives is, Father, you are with me at all times. I must show this world what you are like. I must live in a way that honors you. And uh, if we aren't alive to God, then then we have to live for other things. I keep making this point. For example, um, if you're not alive to God and you think that the be-all and end-all of our life is material benefit, then it should be no surprise to anyone If people who think that is the be-all and end-all of life is if if they have to make a big decision that risks sending almost incalculable amounts of oil into the Gulf. We'll we'll risk that because we can get financial gain. 
then we shouldn't be surprised if we make the decision for that value of financial gain. You see it? Or if we think that the be-all and end-all of life is just my own personal pleasure and my own happiness, then, then we shouldn't be surprised if there's a temptation that might say, if I, if I do this, if I'm unfaithful to my marriage vow, then I'll have more pleasure. I might as well do it, if that's the be-all and end-all of life. But now that we're alive to God, and know that there's another way to live, we don't have to live the way we used to live. Tomorrow can be different because he shows us a better way and because he empowers us to live a different way. Now, are you with me here? In case you've zoned out as I've been just waxing eloquent here. I used to talk about this all the time in university settings and always the same kind of question came. It was framed in different ways. It was always the same kind of question. But isn't living that way, if God's way is different from the world's way, isn't living that way abnormal? And by that, they mean not all that great. Unhealthy. If, if God says, listen, every moment of life is important so that when you go to work, even if it's a big corporation that doesn't care about anybody, you work every moment of that day as if you're working to me, as the book of Ephesians says. That just doesn't. Why should I do it? Unless you're alive to God. Uh, why, why shouldn't you in, in making business deals? Um, if, you're, if you are the head of a business and are able to do that, why shouldn't you make deals that just bring benefit to you and your company rather than thinking about deals that bring benefit to the other person involved too so that you have a long-time relationship? doesn't make any sense to me that the Bible would tell us to think like that, and especially in the one in the university that always got me. If the Bible tells us that I have to be sexually faithful to the one that I am bound to by my marriage vow, that seems abnormal. Well, I, I think my life would be ruined that way, is what we think. Which brings up just an interesting point, namely, how do we determine what is normal, the way we're meant to be, or how, how we're supposed to live, from what is abnormal? And in our society, our democratic world, don't we usually try to do it by seeing what do most people think? Let's take a survey and find out the way that most people think is right and normal, and that is the way you're supposed to live, and anything else is going to be weird or abnormal. H.G. Uh, Wells, I told some of you about this in an earlier sermon. See how many of you have great memories? He wrote this short story called The Country of the Blind. It tells about a man named Nunez, who comes into this tribal community uh, where everybody is uh, congenitally blind. No one had ever been able to see. But Nunez was sighted. So which one, in a, in, a, in a society like that, which one is normal and which one is abnormal? Well, it was, norm, it was Nunez who was abnormal. In fact, the more they got to know him and he would say, but this is happening and this, this could make this better. The more he did that, the more they thought he was a danger to the whole community. He was diagnosed by their psychologists as being mentally ill. And finally, in a community gathering, Without Nunez. They were sitting there talking about it. And one of the people said, you know, I think I found out what's, what's wrong with Nunez. It's those soft enclosures at the top of his head. I think that's his problem. And one of the scientists said, by, by science, we have been able to figure out how to deal with that and how to get rid of those. Someone from the back yells, thank God for science. Uh, another, another person says, let's go tell Nunez. He'll be so happy. 
to me, it is a great piece of satire because it just is trying to make us understand how foolish it is to try to establish right and wrong by what most people do. Because what if most people are doing what is wrong and is what ruining their lives and ruining the whole of society? What if the, the world that we live in has people who just in general are living the way we're not supposed to live and, and just don't have eyes to see what is good and what is right? They aren't alive to the way we were meant to live. Well, isn't that kind of what brought us to Christ in the first place? We tried to live that way. It didn't work. You come in and you hear about God and you say, yes, there has to be a different way to live and a different way to be. And we trust Christ and find forgiveness. But then we find out that when we meet God, we have to live for him and honor our father rather than living for the world. And it makes us different from the rest of the world. And all the world looks at us and says, well, isn't that odd? Isn't that odd? And we find out, no, it is right and it is good. Because Genesis 1 through 3, do you remember? Tells you and me, you and I were made in the image of God. What that means is you and I were made, if we're going to live well, we need to reflect the image of God by our thoughts and by our words and by our actions. But all of us have gone away from that. And so if we're going to live, we have to come back. And what the Bible is telling us is this. If you have trusted Christ, you're now alive to God. You can pull out his word and hear this is how you were meant to live. And we're alive to God. We know his ongoing grace in our lives. And when we do it, we experience life. So I want you to know this. When you leave today, if there is a trial that every time that you think about that and even consider it, it just seems overwhelming to you. God is greater than that trial. If there is a temptation that every time you've given into it, you have failed. I want you to know God goes with you. And because you are now his child and his grace is with you, you can go with hope that tomorrow can be different from yesterday because God is with you right now. That's the second point. And I'm almost done. Which brings me to step number three. But this is one of the most important pieces. Then what do we do? And it brings me to verses 15 and 16. And I'll put it this way. It's an intentional act of faith. When we have readied our minds and know that life can be different, then make a commitment to grow in the ways of your heavenly Father and thereby to glorify Him. By, by glorify, showing His ways to the world. Showing His character. Make a commitment that when you go from here, though you've been going your own way for a long time, that by God's grace and with His help, you are going to live for him and show his ways to a world that need to see him. The way that Peter puts it is this. Just as the one who called you is holy. So you be holy in all you do because it is written. And here he quotes from Leviticus. Be holy because I am holy. I should I should have a written ballot. Does anybody here really want to be Holy in the way that you understand holiness. Do you know, it's a word that most people don't really want all that much. I th didn't I tell you when I was a student pastor years ago, I used to head up summer camps. And in these summer camps, one year, I had, they gave me the worst group of guys. They were always in trouble. And that year, God did a great work. We had a wonderful week at camp. And all of us went away just really happy, enjoying the time. The next week, they gave me them plus a whole group of other 
uh, rotters. I mean, not in the eyes of God, but the way they had been. And they came in. And that time, they got into so much trouble, I had to discipline them. I had to discipline them. So as I called them in, one of the people from who was there the previous year turned to me. I'll never forget it. He said, what's happened to you, Pastor Greg? Have you gone holy on us? Well, I had to think about that. How do you answer that question? I knew that the answer should be, well, nobody would want to be that. (laughs) Who could possibly want? But I knew that what the Bible says is, this is a beautiful and, and a great thing. So I think I better take a moment to think about what it means to be holy because God is holy. I'll tell you what it could not be. The word holy means other than, separated from, different from. So it can't mean that I'm going to be holy in every way that God is. That's impossible. God didn't have a beginning. I did already. I can't be that. Uh, God is is all-powerful. I'm not. You already knew that. God is all-knowing. And no matter how many years we study and how many syllabi we get, (laughs) we're not going to know everything. So he can't be holy in every way that God is. Nor does it mean that we're holy in a way that we're absolutely different from everybody else in the rest of the world. So it doesn't mean, okay, now that you're a Christian, everybody else breathes, but you don't. Can't mean that. Everybody else likes food, but you don't. No, no, no. There's so many ways that we're going to be like the world in the way everybody else is. When you leave here, I hope you'll picnic and have great food. Uh, you, You can love sports. You can really love music. There's so much about holiness that doesn't mean just a set of rules. You can't do anything that anybody else does. So what on earth does it mean? What it means is that when you and I are facing the decisions of life, whether they're dealing with trials or temptations or anything, the one who directs us, the ways that direct us, is our holy God, which are often different from the rest of the world, but always better. That the place where we receive our guidance and direction is the character and nature of God. Now, we were talking about this Tuesday with my preaching group, and Pastor Annie McLaren said, well, I'll tell you, even as a pastor, sometimes I read this and just read right through that because I think... God can't expect us really to be that. Maybe you thought that too when I read it. Be holy as God is holy. And you think, well, that's only for for pastor types. Uh, You know, for years, even the Catholic Church said it was just for the clergy, this this sort of admonition, because nobody else can do it. And now we find out even we as clergy can't do it. So then, then what do we do? What do we do at that? Sometimes you may read it and say, well, that's only for a Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa. That can't be for me. You see the point I'm getting at? When you read a text like this in the Bible... Um, those who are not yet Christians think it is uh, something that is undesirable. And those of us who are Christians think it's impossible. So what do I say as a preacher? I say, look at this. It's a command, not a suggestion. We are to be holy because God is holy. And it's not just for preacher types. It's for all who are children of God. So I think... If that's right, then we must have misunderstood what it's all about. Then being holy can't be all that boring or impossible or life-chilling as many people think it is. In fact, it's the very reason why Jesus gave his life, that we can be people as God meant us to be. Remember Jesus said, I didn't come. I didn't come. I'm not going to die 
to kill, steal, or destroy your life. I have come. He wouldn't be that foolish. I have come that you might have life, life to the full. And that's what it's talking about. That when we begin to live God's way, which is pursuing holiness, then at last we begin to live the way that we were meant to live. And yes, even though the world will sometimes look at it and, and say, oh, that's not normal. Still, I'll tell you, isn't it true that when the people of the world see the real thing, we know it's beautiful. When they watch us and in the midst of trials, they see that we're not just destroyed by it, but continue to have a hope. Even if we've been told that we have terminal cancer, that we know that that's not the end of all things. When people see a confidence in the midst of the worst this world can send at us because our trust is in God, they they see it's a beautiful thing. But when they see you and me being willing to forgive people simply because God has forgiven us, when they see us when we know we've done wrong, uh, apologizing, and with an honest one, with a longing to become more because of our desire to honor our holy God. They see a beautiful thing. When they see us, we have a business meeting coming up. And I don't anticipate this happening. But when they see God's people gathering, and if when we disagree, we sit there and yell and scream at one another like everybody else does, then God isn't honored. But when they see us speaking what is on our minds, but respectfully and listening to one another, And not doing these kind of ads that fill the media and the political campaigns where you just find the most rotten possible things you can say about your opponent. (laughs) But we deal with one another even when we disagree, filled with respect. I'll tell you, when we see that, don't we know that it's good? And that's what he calls us to. And he tells us that when we come to Christ, that's what we're in for. It's the way he made us to live. It it means that when we see people, we see as God sees. When we treat people, we want to treat them as God has treated us so that we will bring them some of his blessing so that, as Jesus said, though people will see our deeds, they will know that God is in us. They know we'd never do that ourselves. And they'll give praise to God and perhaps even be drawn to faith in him themselves. Now, you can hear me. I preach about this so confidently Do you notice even this morning I pounded a couple of times? You probably think that I think that I have this thing nailed. I am still needing the grace of God. I've been struggling with whether to share this, but I did last night, and I was encouraged to. I did at 9 o'clock, so I will with you as well. I was really tested in this sermon on Tuesday morning. I think I've mentioned twice in sermons that uh, we, Chris and I and Brandon, have just had to move my folks from the home we lived in for 47 years to assisted living. Um, Largely it's because of my mom's Alzheimer's. But my dad could no longer care for her. And that was already sort of an emotionally wrenching experience. Well, this last Tuesday when I called my dad, I could just hear that things had deteriorated so much. He He had not been able to get any sleep because mom had been up and angry with him all night disoriented as to what was day and what was night and not even knowing who he was. Even as I was on the phone with him, I could hear the nurse trying to help my mom get dressed in the background. And my mom, who would never have, never have done this, screaming and yelling at her and and throwing things. And my dad, I could feel, what do I do? And, and, you know, we we knew we were going to have to make this decision that in that place of assisted living, 
there was the, the unit where they are, but also there is a memory loss unit, an Alzheimer's unit in that same facility, but separated from him. And we knew that the time had come. But as he continued to talk, it wasn't just that tough decision where after 64 years of marriage, now just knowing that this decision is so final, that this separation, that it will, it's just really saying it'll never be until heaven <laughs> the, the way it has been and, and feeling the guilt of that. And then also the finances just were not coming together and it just feels like and felt like a big black hole sucking just every resource it, and it, so I came in on Tuesday morning after this long talk and trying to seek what was the right way. And, and even though I'm talking to you about it rationally right now, I did not feel like that on Tuesday morning. I was frustrated. I don't even know all the emotions. Uh, probably anger. I know very anxious. The feeling of guilt of being so far away, wondering what to do. My assistant Tiffany is here. So you get into the sermon when you come in the second row. And I, I came in and I just did not even want to preach this sermon. I'll tell you, my thought was, okay, I'm headed back there and we'll just let John Lewis, the chair of the ministry council, figure out what to do on Sunday because I'm not coming. That's how I felt. As I walked into my office, um, sitting there was my Greek New Testament open to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, deal. Therefore, Based upon who God is, He loves you. He's there in the midst of trials. He does what is good and what is right. Therefore, get your mind ready. Settle it down. Just like when you get those syllabi, take it out and say, Father, my screaming and yelling and my anxiety is not going to do one bit of good. But you are at work and you will do a lot of good. Father, help me to be an agent of that good. I could just feel myself starting to settle down, trying to be alert. What is the best thing to do? To get away from the distractions that just keep coming in, the thousand different things, and trying to focus on the most important things. Recognizing that God's grace is at work. And even though I couldn't see it, not only in my life, but in my parents, that God loved them more than I do. And that this time is not outside of His control. And that God says, I'm at work for good to those who love me, for good to those who are called according to my plan. And then pulling back and recognizing that I don't have to live in the way that I would do if I thought this is all there is. If this is all there is, what an absurd world this is. But I've been made alive to the creator of heaven and earth. And then making this commitment, Father, I don't quite know what it looks like. But I pray that I might be able to be guided by the way you are rather than the way I just feel like. So I made that, I call it, an intentional act of faith. Does that make sense to you? Where just intentionally you say, I don't see it all, but I am going to trust you. I am going to trust you. And I'm here and I'm not going to pretend to you. I'm not going to pretend to you that all is well. It, it is still so hard. When it comes to Alzheimer's, it seems that no decision has good outcomes. Not in the short run. In the long run, I believe that there is. I'm not going to try to pretend to you that it is easy. But I'll tell you, I do believe all is well with my soul. And I entrust that all is well with my folks too. 
It's what I know Peter wanted this passage to do in our hearts and in our lives. And I want to tell you that this sort of thing is not just for a pastor, but for all who are children of God. The the difference that Christ can make in the midst of whatever we face is not just for religious elite, it's for all who are children of God. Therefore, it is for you if you are a child of God. So, we have gathered to cast our eyes upon the God who is the maker of heaven and earth and remember His grace that is to us and remember that He has made us alive (laughs) to eternal things and remember that He is present and at work even in trials. Remember that He has graced us. Therefore, when we go from this place into this very difficult world, we're going to have alert minds, right? Ready for it. Setting it on what God is doing. We're not going to go out of here with a hopelessness, are we? Because we know God is there and He is greater than anything in this world. And we're going to go out with a commitment that by God's grace and with His power, He might show His grace and His love to a world, this hurting world, that needs to see Him. That we may live to His glory. At the very end, I want us to read a psalm that has really helped me put so much of this together. Psalm 46, I've just taken out a part of it, that I want you to pray or affirm with me. I don't know what you're going to be facing this week, but this is what I want you to remember. Will you read it together with me? We'll make this our affirmation together as a family. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen. To his glory.